Uh, Grab your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 52. We'll start in verse 13. So your assignment was chapter 53, and that's fine. But the real section, the servant song, starts in chapter 52, verse 13, and goes through the end of of chapter 53. Perhaps, uh, uh, well, no doubt, one of the most well-known and significant parts of uh, the book of Isaiah. So uh, once you find it, if you'll stand with me in reverence for God's word, and we will uh, look at his word. Chapter 52, verse 13 uh, the prophet Isaiah writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. His form beyond that of, of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that, that before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I ask that you would be so kind as to open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands, our feet, our entire being, that we would see Christ. And having seen Christ, we see the world through his eyes, And we are transformed by his love. Help us to see that here is Christ in the Old Testament, where the saints were prepared, and now we have received the Messiah. May I decrease so you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. If you were to come up with a top five, top ten, top 100 list, whatever you want it to be, a top list of the funniest comedy sketches of all time. I think near the top, if not at the very top of that, is Abbott and Costello's Who's On First. 
it's, it's, it's the delivery. I taught a, um, this is free. I, I taught a logic class this past year with our homeschoolers and I've taught it twice. And both times I used, uh, that skit as an illustrator, made the students watch the entire thing. So in case you want to see how it goes down, right? Who's on first, what's on second. I don't, uh, I don't care. I'm going to use that language on shortstop. I don't know who's on third. Tomorrow's the pitcher. Today's the catcher. Nobody's right field because of center field and why is left field. Well, I have, I'm sure you are familiar uh, with, with that. And, and, of course, the real fun is the, with first base. Who is on first? Yes. Right? And then just, just keep going back and forth, right? What are you talking about? No, he's on second, right? And so on. And so forth. Well, I think prophecy can play a similar game as the sort of who's on first, what's on second. At times, to whom the prophet addresses and predicts is very clear and is made explicitly clear. And we can use Isaiah for these examples. For example, in Isaiah 45, we are told, and this is as dark as I can get this font. I don't know. I'm not an expert with PowerPoint. You'll notice here that uh, Isaiah predicts a man by the name of Cyrus will come. It's interesting that word anointed means Messiah, uh, which is interesting, uh, which will, we won't chase that rabbit. But uh, that the Lord has anointed a specific person named King Cyrus. And of course, you look at history, Cyrus rises and um, among the Assyrians and subdues the nations as is predicted. Usually, however, the clear identity of who it is the prophet is speaking of remains a bit ambiguous. And as such, it, it at times could refer to a number of people. Let me give you another example from the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 7, see if you've heard of it. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, we've looked at this text before. Leave our first Christmas here, we looked at this text. And you can go back somewhere on the World Wide Web and find all of that. So we, we can't explore this. But the identity of the person, now we know it's Jesus, yes. But the initial identity of this person, it, it, at the very least, is probably not exclusively Jesus. After all, Isaiah is addressing an immediate problem. And Isaiah is telling the people of Israel, here is a sign. A young maiden, here translated virgin, will conceive and will bear a son. And that could mean a number of people. Uh, most likely, or one of the more likely candidates would be Isaiah's own son born at this time. Now, the ultimate fulfillment, however, we believe is Christ, as Matthew makes explicitly clear when the Virgin Mary gives birth to, um, to Jesus. But that question remains that when you read the text, the question is, who? Who are we talking about here? And Isaiah 53 is certainly one of those passages. Because if you're a Jew and you come to this passage, you cannot accept that this was fulfilled in Jesus. You come to the, you come to the Christian, and you cannot but help conclude that it can be no one else but Jesus. Who, we could say, is on first. Well, throughout this passage, we see that Isaiah describes a servant. My servant is the language often used. And this is a servant that is to come. Now, we should note here, again, we, we just read bits and pieces of Isaiah. But if, if, if we were to read through it, and I would encourage you to do so, 
we would find that this is the fourth and final of what, the, of what we call the um, servant songs. And so if you want to find those, chapter 42, verses 1 to 9 is the first. Chapter 49 is the second. Chapter 50 is the third. And here, chapter 52 into chapter 53 is the fourth and final one. And it is here, I believe, that we discover whom God has ultimately in mind. Who is the servant that will come to deliver Israel? Let's start here in uh, chapter 52, verse 13, on into verse 2 of chapter 53. And that is that the servant is revealed. Now, to understand this, you need to see that there is a contrast between um, the, the servant who is exalted and the servant who is humbled. Right? And, and, and this is what makes prophecy so fascinating and frustrating. As you put these two descriptions, you're saying, how in the world can these two descriptions fit in one single individual? So notice in verse 13, it's the exaltation of the servants. It says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. The word could be translated there prudently or, uh, or even prosper. Your translation may, may reflect that. Uh, he, he will act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. Clearly, exaltation is described there. He will be lifted as high as a king or someone even greater. And then you'll see also in verse 15, more exaltation, right? So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they shall see. And that which they have not heard, they will understand. Now, there is some significant debate regarding the meaning of verse 15. And his translation can be difficult. Maybe your translation is very different from mine. But regardless, it is a verse of exaltation. He shall shut the mouths of kings. And think about it. Politicians love the talk. I shared this with you the first time I ever had any involvement with Capital Commission. I was there just to help. Uh, my predecessor was doing excellent work, and uh, it was my job just to greet legislators as they were coming in for a free lunch. And they love free lunches. That's a, that's a, I could insert a joke there. But so, so, so I think it was that I grew up in Kentucky, and, and what I found was I knew enough of Kentucky that every legislator came in. If I found out where they were from, I could get them to talk. Right. So if you were from Bowling Green, for example, I can mention something about Western Kentucky University, how I went to a football game one time and then go. Right. Once you start commonality, a politician will take over for the next 40 minutes. Right. I mean, politicians love the talk. Preachers love the talk. Women love to talk, but nevertheless, you will notice here, you, you have, that one didn't get me true, uh, you have here is that he will shut their mouths because of his greatness. So you have this exaltation language here right from the beginning. He will be revealed as the exalted servant of God. But simultaneously, we see him being brought low. He will be humbled at the same time. So go back to, to verse 14. It says, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of children of the children of mankind. Notice his appearance was marred. The word marred here is used only one other time in the Bible. That is in Leviticus 22, which I won't read to you. If you read it, you'll understand why. But it, it, it describes sacrifices that are unacceptable to God due to deformities. And it's striking language used in Leviticus 22. So, so, so here you have the servant being compared to the unacceptable sacrifices, 
right? They weren't blameless. And so what he's not saying here is that the servant is, is, is not blameless. Rather, he's saying that, that his appearance is one that is unacceptable, doesn't, doesn't fit what it is that we think of, of beauty and, and power and everything else. In fact, he's so marred, Isaiah tells us here, he is beyond human semblance. What a description. And then you can go down to verse 16, uh, uh, and, and, or rather uh, verse 1 um, of, of chapter 53. It says, Who has believed? What he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Here you go. He grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Notice the language there. He is exalted among the kings, yet he isn't majestic. He is he is humbled. He is these great things. In fact, go back to what we said in verse 15, that, that the kings will be put to silence. And then if we start chapter 53, he is still ignored. So the kings will be made silent by him, but he will simultaneously be ignored. He grows up with no form, no majesty, no beauty. It's incredible, isn't it? He, he is revealed as exalted and humbled at the same time. Who could fit such a seemingly contradictory description? Well, not only is he revealed, but he is rejected, starting in verse 3 of chapter 53. Whoever this servant is, Isaiah tells us, he will suffer greatly. Remember, he will be exalted, but here he is described as being brought low. Notice in verse 3, he suffers separation. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Thus he and his sufferings are described as being despised and rejected. And yet he is exalted, right? I mean, it's, it's the descriptions are just so profound that we have here. And as a result of his separation, his rejection... He becomes a man of sorrows. And in fact, notice, this, this really stuck out to me. I don't know if I've ever noticed this in Isaiah 53. Um, at the very end, he was despised. And notice, we esteem him not. Now remember, Isaiah's writing this, and the implication is it is his generation that this describes. But as we see, I don't think it's just his generation. I think it's his people of all ages. And not just his people, but we, the reader, will not uh, accept this one who is being rejected. In fact, it's almost as if he's suggesting Israel will be the cause of the servant's grief and separation. So you get separation in verse 3. You get his sorrows already hinted at, but it is, is developed more in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now, we already saw he's a man of sorrows. What a name. But here, it is the bearing of sorrows. So he doesn't just suffer rejection, but he carries on his shoulders griefs and sorrows. Thirdly, he is wounded due to sin. Separation, sorrows, sin. Verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
At this point, Isaiah shows that he suffers, but also here what his suffering achieves. So it isn't aimless, meaningless suffering. Rather, God achieves something great through the suffering of the servant, the exalted, humble servant. And the irony is that the suffering servant is pierced, he is crushed, he is chastised, and he is wounded. And all of this abuse produces healing and peace. That's the real beautiful irony, isn't it, there? That his suffering procures for those who are the cause of his suffering peace, healing. It's, 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 it's unfounded. You wouldn't say this about any other circumstance, would you? That because he suffered, now we, we are better off for it. This doesn't sound good at all. That's what Isaiah is suggesting. And then, verse 6, there's that we again. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, all of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're back to that, to that possessive plural. Like sheep, we flee. And so, again, more irony is that he, and we'll see this here in a minute, he is likened to a lamb. We are likened to sheep. <laughs> As a lamb, he suffers. As sheep, we run astray. Nevertheless, Yahweh lays on the servant our iniquity. We are his sheep. He is the Lord's lamb. And you'll notice how he suffers in verses 7 to 9. First of all, he suffers in silence. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that led to the slaughter... Like a sheep that before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I couldn't find the exact reference here. Maybe some of y'all can help me find. It. I could use it later in another sermon illustration. But there was a lady who, a young lady who, I think she had some form of autism. Again, don't quote me on this. Couldn't find it. But she revolutionized the slaughter industry uh, to where she encouraged, I think, the playing of music and other things to settle the the anxiety of cattle who, because they've been uh, uh, their anxiousness has been dealt with. They, they just go right into the slaughter. It makes it for a lot easier process. And it was someone with some sort of autism or something like that. And that's sort of the image that comes, comes to me here. It is just, just, just one after another. And here he is as a lamb being led to slaughter. His response is not to fight. It is not to, to, to cry injustice. It is not to stir up the mob. Rather, it is he goes humbly, he goes quietly to his destination of suffering. It's an incredible scene that we, we have here. So he's silent. He is also, again, separated there in verse 8. He is cut off. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. It's interesting. It's his generation, not our generation. That's interesting because the we has been so prominent. Now it's, 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 it's distance, right? His generation, almost like it's yet to come. It's, it's both and. It's, it's weird, isn't it? We, this is why the question of who's on first is so complicated in reading prophecy. This is why we have to allow some ambiguity and allow multiple options with who this fulfills. But ultimately, it's, it's his generation will, will respond in, in this sort of way. But nevertheless, he, we see here that there is perhaps nothing more humiliating and shameful for a Jew than to be excommunicated from their community. And to be cut off was the, was the responsibility of the scapegoat, right? In Leviticus 16, you have two goats. One is 
the goat of atonement. He will die. His blood will be shed. The other goat will be the scapegoat. He will be sent into the wilderness. He will be cut off from among the people, cut off from the community, cut off from the covenant. He will be cast aside. Why? For the transgression of my people. I do think this is a reference to the scapegoat. Some may disagree with that, and that's fine. Finally, he will be submerged. It's the, it, it starts with an S, so work with me, people. He will be buried. Verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Clearly, this suffering is to death. He will be buried. And he's not merely buried. He is cast into the graves of the wicked. However, he is buried among the wealthy. How does that work? He's cast out among the wicked, though innocent, clearly. Yet he is numbered among the wealthy and the prosperous. You see the contradictory nature here. How can one fulfill these, these promises? Well, thirdly, we see the servant who redeems. Recall that Isaiah suggested we esteemed him not. Thus, the prophet wants the reader to feel responsibility for his suffering. The Lord's servant will suffer due to the Lord's people. Though the exalted servant of Yahweh, we esteemed him not. Though humble, we like sheep have gone astray while he suffers incredible injustice. Now, however, Isaiah suggests it is ultimately the Lord's work for him to suffer. The servant suffers because he is obedient to the will of God. And because it was God's will, the suffering servant accomplishes God's good will, which results in Israel's benefits. Right, so, so we see this, this, the will of God and, and the wicked will of man coming together, right? What God wills is for good. What man willed was for evil. God triumphs in the end. It doesn't mean that what happens here isn't unjust or wicked. It is that not even man's climactic of wickedness could not overcome God's goodness. But make no mistake, it was God's good will to allow his son to suffer, or his servant rather, to suffer. I'm obviously a Christian, and you know where this is going. Notice the language, verse 10. It was the will of Yahweh, the Lord, to crush him. And so he, the Lord crushes him, and in so doing, he is, it says there, an offering for guilt. The Lord crushes him, the Lord brings him to grief, the man of sorrows, what a name. And now, because of that, he is an offering for sin. Clearly, the servant dies as an atonement for sin. This is what the term means. So the servant freely offers himself in the text. At the same time, it is, he, 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 is, he is sent there by the Lord. Both are true. And this language is, is interesting there in verse 10. Um, he shall see his offspring. Notice see is active, right? He, he will witness them. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, this is strange, isn't it? How can one be executed, be buried among the wicked and the wealthy, and simultaneously see his offspring and prolong his days. This is, this is the beauty of, of poetry. It's why much of prophecy is poetry. It's because, it's because in poetry you can swim in these seemingly contradictory terms. How can one be exalted and brought low? 
How can we speak of we and his future generation? And how can we say he will be buried, yet he will live? It's, it's both. Now, I trust you know the answer to this. But put your, yourself in the shoes of Isaiah and his generation with Uriah and Hezekiah and Ahaz and others. This seems impossible for one to fulfill. Well, the end result of his atoning work is given to us in verse 11. First of all, he will bear their iniquities. Notice, because he's not bearing his own. The iniquities is of others. And many, on account of his atoning sacrifice, will be accounted righteousness. Will be counted righteous. It's the language of justification. It's a counting term. Though guilty, though in debt, one will be found justified righteous. And verse 12 repeats the same. He bore the sins of many, makes intercessions for transgressors. This leads to our final point. So we've seen the servant revealed, the servant rejected, and the servant who redeems. We finally need to see the sinner who repents. And there are two issues with this text we have to address. The first is the identity of the servant. You can imagine that's sort of an important point. Who is on first, right? Who is on first? That's what I'm asking. Who's on first, right? Well, throughout the years, scholars have debated the true identity of servant. I say throughout the years, since Isaiah wrote this. And given that much of this passage is written in the past tense, some have suggested that this refers to a past person, right? Like Cyrus was, or Isaiah's son might be a fulfillment of Isaiah 7. Well, to cut it short... Christians agree universally. And you can tell that I agree with this. Isaiah is ultimately foreseeing here Jesus. And remember how much, of, how much of prophecy works. There are immediate fulfillments of prophecy. And then there are ultimate fulfillments of prophecy. So if you want a good example of this, the very end of the Old Testament, Malachi, foretells the return of Elijah. And we find out in the New Testament, both Jesus, or John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that and that he is not the fulfillment of that. What does that mean? Well, you read Revelation, what you find is the ultimate Elijah will, is still yet to come. Both are true. We see this throughout, an immediate fulfillment and an ultimate fulfillment. And so Christians have seen the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 53 is found in Jesus. In fact, we can turn to the New Testament. To see this. Let me show you Matthew chapter 8. Now, this is right after Jesus heals the leper. Uh, he heals the centurion servant and he heals Peter's, uh, Peter's mom-in-law. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And Now notice this. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah from chapter 53. We just read. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, we've looked at this passage a number of times. I love Matthew 18. I love the first 17 verses of Matthew 18, but I love the whole chapter. What Matthew is saying is that you must interpret the miracles of Jesus through the lens of what Isaiah prophesied. And what did Isaiah prophesy? He heals or he atones for by the means of his death. And here, Isaiah clearly connects the prophecy of Isaiah 53 with Jesus, who atones for or makes healing possible for all who repents. Clearly is what Matthew is doing. And we missed the point of the miracles. We did a whole series on the miracles not too long ago. 
We miss the point of the miracles if we miss what Matthew says here. And so you can't appreciate what Matthew says here without looking back at the prophecy of Isaiah, the, of the fourth servant song, and without looking forward to the cross and resurrection of Jesus. So that's why the miracles are not about Jesus the humanitarian. It's Jesus the Savior. So what we see in these healings is a picture of grace. Or we can look at John chapter 12. John 12, though he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's Isaiah 53 verse 1. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. John is saying that that the rejection of Jesus in chapter 12, which is when he begins his final week, his rejection is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, which means Isaiah 53 is fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. Can I read to you from a book? I read it years ago, and and, and, um, this this passage stuck out to me among some others. It's a Lee Strobel book. I don't know if you ever read a Lee Strobel book. Uh, He writes as an investigative journalist. Uh, this is his, it's the case books, the case for Christ, case for faith, case for creator, case for Easter, uh, and, and the case for the case of case books. This one is the case for the real Jesus. I want to read in his chapter regarding did Jesus uh, fulfill the Messianic prophecies. So you're going to have to listen quickly, okay? Um, because he, he introduces some things that we just, we don't have time to explore in detail. When we get to Isaiah, we see references to the servant of the Lord. A number of these verses are also recognized as referring to the Messiah in some ancient Jewish traditions. Isaiah 42, one of the servant songs, says he will not falter until he brings justice to the earth. Isaiah 49, another servant song, says the servant has the mission of regathering the tribes of Israel to bring them back to God. The servant feels as if he failed in his mission, but God says not only will he ultimately regard Israel, but he adds in Isaiah 49, 6, the third servant passage, Quote, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. You may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth, end quote. Strobel writes, then Brown, who he's interviewing here, brought up the most famous Messianic passage, which we just read. These verses, he says, quote, says the Messiah will be highly exalted, but first he will suffer terribly. He will actually be disfigured in his suffering. And the narrative says the people of Israel didn't get it. They thought he was suffering for their, their own sins and wickedness, for his own sins and wickedness. They didn't realize he was bearing their sins, suffering on their behalf, and by his wounds there was healing for them. Then it speaks of his death and his continued life after that. Now we narrow things even more. In 2 Chronicles 7, God says if Israel's sin reaches a certain level, he will destroy the temple, exile the people, and leave them in a state of judgment. Of course, that's exactly what happened. The prophet Daniel prays in Daniel 9 that God would have mercy. Of course, he's an exilic prophet. God gives a revelation about the temple being rebuilt. Before this new temple is destroyed, Daniel was told several things are going to take place, including the bringing of an everlasting atonement, the final dealing with sin. The prophet Haggai lives to see the second temple built, but it's nothing like the first. The first one, Solomon's temple, was not only a stunning physical structure, far more imposing than the second, but it had the glory of God there. The second temple didn't have the presence of God or the divine fire. Yet Haggai said the glory of the second temple would be greater than the first. 
God will fill the second temple with his glory. The Hebrew word for glory can sometimes refer to great wealth and abundance. But when God says he'll fill the temple with glory, that can only apply to his presence. Then the prophet Malachi, who lived later, says the Lord will come to his temple, purify some of his people, and bring judgment on others. He uses a Hebrew term that always refers to God himself. The Lord, he will come to his temple. Keep in mind, the second temple was destroyed in AD 70, about 40 years, a little less than 40 years after Jesus lived. Atonement for sin had to be made and divine visitation had to take place before its destruction in AD 70. There are even rabbinic traditions that put the Messiah's coming. I don't want to read that. So it's not a matter of maybe there's another one who's the Messiah. If it is not Jesus, which then throw out the Bible because nobody except him accomplished what needed to be done prior to AD 70. What divine visitation did take place, if not Jesus? When else did God visit the second temple in a personal way? Who else atoned for sin? How else was the glory of the second temple greater than the first? Either the Messiah came 2,000 years ago, or the prophets were wrong, and we can discard the Bible. But they weren't wrong. Jesus is the Messiah, or nobody is. I love that. I love that. So his identity, the identity of the servant, I think, is clearly Jesus. But what is the meaning of his suffering? Well, Isaiah sees hope in the servant. It's why he dedicates much of the latter half of his book to him. This is the climatic servant song, and thus we should look at see what the Messiah accomplishes. And without a doubt... What the suffering servant accomplishments accomplishes comes or is as is portrayed as a substitutionary sacrifice. Hence the language of the lambs. And one of the best ways to demonstrate this is often through pronouns and uh, another word in English. I don't know what it is in uh, in uh, grammar language, so it wouldn't be a linking verb. I don't know. You'll see. Okay. So for example, verse four. He bears our griefs. You see the pronouns? Later in verse 4, he bears our sorrows. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. Later, he was crushed for our iniquities. Go on in verse 5. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And then his wounds... We are healed. Verse 6, they were laid on him, the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted. Verse 8, he was taken away, he was cut off. Also in verse 8, he was stricken for the transgressions of my people. That's me, Isaiah saying. Verse 10, he is an offering for guilt. Verse 12, he bore the sins of many. Later in verse 12, he makes intercessions, intercession for the trans. You see in here, two key words, or three key words here is, is the contrast between he and us. The other is the word for, right? So for example, in uh, there at the end of verse, verse 12, he makes intercessions for the transgressors, right? The word for implies substitution, I will pay for your meal. 
That is me taking upon myself your debt. What you owe, I pay for. For often, and particularly in, in this context, implies substitution. So what Isaiah is saying here, the way he will shut the mouths of the kings, the way he will be exalted, the way he will prolong his days will come by the means of rejection and suffering. But what he accomplishes in that suffering is atonement, not for himself, but for all who would come to him. If you don't believe me, in 1 Peter 1, I think I have it up there. 1 Peter 1. This is his point. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Notice the language of substitution. Leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Sounds like Isaiah 53 to me. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He also bore our sins in the body on the tree that we might die to sin, live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You are strained like sheep, have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of yourselves. Where does that language come from? It's not because Peter's a good writer, because he knows his Bible. We could go back to Matthew 8 and see that Matthew is telling us that Jesus takes the sickness in, in the context of the healings upon himself. That's why he touches the leper. He, he touches the Peter's mother-in-law, right? He, he takes upon himself their sickness so that through him they might be healed. And, and remember what Matthew said in, in, in chapter 8, verse 17. This was to fulfill what the prophet said. By his wounds we are healed. And this is why throughout history, Isaiah has been considered the fifth gospel. In fact, we could say that when the early church was going around evangelizing and the Gideons were passing out their Bibles, right? They had a Bible. Even before there was an Apostle Paul. You want to know what their Bible was? It's the Old Testament. And it was adequate enough for them to share the gospel. Can I prove it to you? Grab your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts 8. Just so you see, our interpretation of Isaiah 53 is the interpretation of the first Christians. Isaiah 53, I trust you know the story. The story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. We'll go down to verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south of the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. He rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chair, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. The spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chair. So Philip ran to him, heard him read Isaiah the prophet, and asked, Do you understand who is on first? Right? He wants to know, Do you understand what you're reading here? He said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up. And this, by the way, this is evangelism by discipleship, Matthew 28. Verse 32, now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation for his life is taken away from the earth. Sound familiar? It's Isaiah chapter 53 is what he's reading. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? You see what he's asking? Is there an immediate fulfillment or is there an ultimate fulfillment to this? Who is on first? Who is this? 
What a strange passage it is. Who could fulfill this, this sort of language? Verse 36, verse 35 rather. Philip opened his mouth and beginning with scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And having received the good news of Jesus, he is then baptized. You see? It isn't just who is this servant, but what is it that he accomplishes? He is the great atoning sacrifice, the one in whom we are to look for, for our salvation. Philip rightly understood that the servant is Jesus, and the gospel, the good news, was procured by Jesus at the cross. Well, that's the question of the text, right? In this Ethiopian eunuch got it. The question is, who is this man? By the way, read the Gospels, and that's the question that dominates the text. Let me give you just Matthew, for example. The Magi asked this question. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? And they first go to Herod, and they say, it's not him. Who is this king? John the Baptist asks, and it says in chapter 3, I baptize you water and repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Who is this man? He's coming. He's coming right after me. The Father declares at his baptism, this is my beloved Son, of whom I am well pleased. Or we can even look at the disciples in chapter 8, after, after Jesus calms the storm. Remember they say, who is this guy? That even the wind and the sea and the waves obey him. Or we can look at John the Baptist's disciples, right? Are you the one who is to come? Are we to look to someone else? And this leads to Israel asking this question. The whole city is stirred up. Who is this guy? That's the question we should be asking ourselves. It's the most important question we could ever ask ourselves. Who is this? That's the question the third day has in their song. Who is this king of glory that pursues me with his love and haunts me with each hearing of his softly spoken words? My conscience a reminder of forgiveness that I need. Who is this king of glory who offers it to me? Who is this king of angels, O blessed prince of peace? Revealing things of heaven and all its mysteries. My spirit's ever longing for his grace in which to stand. Who is this king of glory, son of God and son of man? Who is this king of glory with strength and majesty and wisdom beyond measure, the gracious king of kings, the Lord of earth and heaven, the creator of all things? Who is this king of glory? He is everything to me. His name is Jesus, precious Jesus, the Lord Almighty, King of my heart, King of glory. Let's pray. Father, as you be so kind that we would extol in the one so greatly humbled. Isn't that what Paul tells in Philippians 2? An account of his humbling in his incarnation is greater humbling upon the cross. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. Who is this King of glory? 
Who is the suffering servant? If it be not Jesus, then we have no hope of one ever coming. And this is the good news. What the prophets foresaw has been fulfilled. The answer to our longings has come. May we glorify the King of glory, the servant of the Lord, who is our Savior. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys.